0: Hey, Cornerstone, how you guys doing? Good. Hey, how many of you guys actually went trick-or-treating last night with your munchkins? Yeah, handed out candy, all that good stuff like that. How many of you guys actually hand out real candy bars? Yeah, how many of you guys do the little fun size stuff? Yeah, there's nothing fun about that. I was, we went trick-or-treating last night really, you know, we went trick-or-treating last night with my family, with another uh, family, some friends of ours, and I've never seen anybody give out like the real legitimate candy bar size candy, and he had a huge bowl bowl full of real candy bars, and I was was, like shocked. I was like, if I was a kid, and you left that bowl out, I would just dump that whole bowl into my little bag. My wife, she brought home these for the kids to like do the trick-or-treat thing, and we had a fairy in my house last night. We had a, uh, a pirate, and we had a princess. And we went around door to door, and they had little bags. When I was a kid, I didn't have bags like this. We had, like, our pillow sack, you know? I mean, sh- show me when I'm 10 years old this little bag, and I'm like, psh, I'm chucking it, dude. I need a bigger bag, bro, you know? <laughs> It was it was it was it was pretty interesting though. It was kind of funny. Um, it, something happened to me when I was 10 years old. Uh, trick or treating, my mom and my dad and I, we kind of came up with the coolest costume we could come up with. It was it was a, a robot. And so we got this really big old box. We spray painted it silver, put knobs on it, all this stuff. Went to the hardware store and got like the dryer tubing and everything, right? And so like you put me in this 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 robot outfit, and I'm like walking around waddling like this. You know what I mean? And it, it, growing up on the East Coast, trick or treating is different on the East Coast than the West. Is there anybody East Coast people here? Yeah, right on. Okay, you're normal. So, we, no lie, there's grass on the East Coast. And so, what you would do, you can like cut, you can be really efficient about your trick or treating. You can like cut through the yards. You don't have to like go up and down sidewalks and all this stuff. You just cut from door to door to door. I mean, you can wipe out a neighborhood quick. And so, we would do that, right? And well, one night we're going from door to door to door and doing the normal deal. And the idea and the goal of candy night is to get as much candy as you can in the quickest amount of time as you can. And so we're going from door to door and some guy had like knocked down a tree in his yard. He, he had cut down a tree like that week, didn't know it. All my friends, because they didn't have a box on their head, could see the tree. They jumped over it, I didn't, and so what happens is here, poor 10-year-old Paul is stuck on his back, stuck in a box, doing this number like this, you know, it's kind of like the um, Christmas story, the kid is all bundled up and he can't get up, that was what was going on. And so I've got this dilemma, in, you know, all the parents, they walk on the street, right? And I've got this dilemma in my life right now. I've got the gluttony of candy in my heart, and yet I've got this pride issue of I don't want to be known as the only 10-year-old who had to ask his mom to help him get up off his back at Halloween time. Now, all my friends are laughing at me, and I'm stuck like this, and finally, my gluttony went out over my pride, and I said, go get my mom, and my mom comes up, right, and she's supposed to be the loving, nurturing mother to pick her son up. You know what my mom does in front of all of my little 10-year-old friends? she loses it. She laughs laughs in my face. And I mean, it's like scarred to this day kind of deal. So, hey, we're in this middle of this conversation called dilemma. We're kind of landing the conversation today And up until this point, if you've been around, we've been talking about and describing Jesus kind of as this really intrusive guy, kind of this um, busybody, nosy fellow who's going to be a pesk and kind of poke around in your life and create dilemma for you and bring you to the point of obedience and surrender and all that stuff. Um, I want to get kind of beneath that conversation today as we finish this conversation, if that's okay with you. Uh, I Kind of go to the next level and kind of deal with the heart component of this. Because I don't know if it's necessarily Jesus is nosy. I don't know if it's necessarily Jesus is pesky and always is kind of messing around with our business. I don't know if it's so much that as so much it is as you and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ and we become closer and closer and closer to Him, I think more of what actually happens in that moment is that because he's so holy and he's so loving, our lack of love and our lack of holiness just becomes naturally exposed. Does that make sense? And stuff that's already there in our heart then becomes a point of dilemma for us. Does that make sense? It's, I don't think it's necessarily Jesus is the bad guy and he's trying to, trying to um, bully us around into holiness and beat us into submission as so much as that Jesus is so loving and He's so holy and He's so pure. The longer we walk with Him, the more we realize, oh my goodness, I'm not like that. And we become face to face with the reality of our ineptness and our brokenness. And at those points, it naturally creates dilemma for us. And I think one of the best passages of Scripture for us to to kind of look at and unpack this is is John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, I want you to do me a favor, grab it, open it up to John chapter 4. It's like the fourth book in the New Testament. If you kind of start in the middle and go right, you're going to find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 4. And I'm going to encourage you guys. There's, there's this whole story in John chapter 4. It's a huge story. And to be honest, I, I don't have time in, the, in this talk to read through 40 verses for us. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys go home and read this, journal about this, reflect about this, try to apply it to your life. Because the story and all the little nuances of the, of the conversation that Jesus has here in this moment are incredibly, incredibly rich. And so I encourage you guys to do that. And, and the whole thing. In John chapter 4, it kind of sets up where uh, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea to Galilee. And, and they decide, Jesus decides to go through Samaria. And the scripture even says in verse 4, if you look there for yourself, it, in your Bible, it may say that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Um, that's not necessarily totally true. I'm not saying the scripture is wrong. I, I am saying that there's a couple of different routes Jesus could have gone. I mean, there's the, there's the route that goes up across the Jordan. To Galilee, that was the kind of the normal Jewish way to go I mean that 's the road most traveled that 's the one with all the little Jewish restaurants on it and That's that 's the one that everybody's kind of used to going right uh, there's the also the kind of the beach way Jesus could have said hey guys let 's just take the Pacific Highway and go up the one and, and, and go th- that way because they could have literally gone up the beach, which would have, could have been a really nice deal Jesus and the disciples have been baptizing a bunch of people, and they've been working really hard. And he could have said, hey guys, on our way to Galilee, let's just take a break, man. Let's walk on the beach for a change and just enjoy hanging out with each other. So he could have gone that way too, but instead, he chose to take the most direct route from Judea to Galilee, which is right through Samaria. And it's the quickest route, but as you read the story, Jesus wasn't going that route because he was in a hurry because as you read this story later, you're going to find that Jesus decides to stay in this village that he hangs out in for two days. So Jesus wasn't in a hurry. So as the scriptures say Jesus had to go that way, it wasn't necessarily that he had to go that route, but he, but he had to do something in Samaria. Does that make sense? There, he had an appointment in Samaria that he had to make, and not so much that he had to go that route as opposed to two other different routes. And, and so you know, too, as you read this story for yourself, you're going to find some language in here. when uh, Jesus has this interaction with a woman that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along well at all. I mean, in fact, they hated each other. There was some real ethnic clashing. You could use the word racism to describe the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And you're going to read this story. You're going you're to find Jesus coming to a, a well. And you're going to find Jesus being really thirsty after the walk, and the disciples are going to kind of take off and go get supplies for the night, and Jesus is going to be left at this well, and this woman is going to come to the well at noontime, the Scriptures say, which is not the normal time for women to come to the well. Usually it was in the early morning when it's not so hot. And so this woman, obviously, she's by herself, you guys who have been around church world for a while. You, you kind of know this story. This woman had some, some real social issues. Um, she'd been married a bunch of times, kind of an outcast from the community, and she's by herself at this well. And Jesus had, strikes up a conversation with this woman and basically says, hey, why don't you give me something to drink? The woman kind of looks at him and says, hey, why don't you get yourself something to drink? You know, And you know, what are you? I mean, literally, you read it, and she literally says, hey, what are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink. Don't you know your kind and my kind don't hang out and don't mix? And later in the passage, you're going to see even um, the disciples, they're going to come back, and they're going to kind of catch Jesus in the act of having this conversation alone with a woman, which a rabbi would never do. And, and, and beyond her being a woman, she was a Samaritan and your, your Bible, as you read it through, I think it's actually like in verse 27, as you read that through for yourself, you're going to see this picture of the disciples kind of whispering among themselves saying, dude, what is he doing? Doesn't he know that he shouldn't be alone with a woman? Doesn't he know that's a big cultural no-no? What's he doing hanging out with that Samaritan? Peter, why don't you ask? No, 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 John, why don't you ask? And it was, it was kind of that thing. Nobody really wanted to ask Jesus because something was exposed in their heart in that moment. And again, this is how Jesus works when it comes to dilemmas in our life. It's not so much that Jesus puts his thumb on us and says, hey, get this right, as so much as Jesus lives his life out in front of us, and our shortcomings are exposed. And what happens in this moment is that the disciples' shortcomings are exposed, and they come face to face with the reality that, whoa, hold on. I don't love the way Jesus loves you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confined to some social constructs here that this gender thing, I would never hang out with a woman alone because social constructs says, no, 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 we don't do that. And yet I see Jesus loving this woman in a very unique way, affirming her. Now, and she's ostracized culturally and socially because of some relational baggage that she's got. And let's be honest, there's not a person in this room that doesn't bring baggage to this moment in our lives, is there? I mean, me included, i we're human. It's part of the human condition that we show up to this room with this morning. And Jesus has this conversation with this woman, and because of that, the disciples are confronted face to face with their lack of love. And and I don't know for you whether you ever find that to be true in your life. I know it was really interesting for me. I was absolutely surprised in 2001 when I met this little girl by the name of Emily. This little girl, Emily, um, was born with cerebral palsy. And she was confined to a wheelchair, and she was really hard for me to understand when she talked. To be honest with you, I didn't know how to act around Emily at first. I'd never been around anybody who was confined to a wheelchair. Um, it was a real new experience for me. And, and being a pastor, I, mean, I was frankly embarrassed by what I began to find in my heart in that moment. I mean, pastors of all people, we should be probably the most loving people on the planet, right? Right? I mean, we should, we should demonstrate Christ's love across any kind of barrier, and I remember watching this girl, and I mean, she was sharp, intelligent, straight-A kid, got to meet the president and actually served uh, as, a, as a closing speaker for a student leadership council in, in Washington, D.C. Um, sharp, sharp kid, but when I was around her at first, I, it's embarrassing for me to say out loud, but I didn't quite know how to act. I didn't know whether I should hug her, shake her hand, and yet she couldn't really shake hands because her hand was kind of like this, and and she offered it. I kind of awkwardly accepted. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that before where all of a sudden you came face to face with something, and I never honestly thought of myself as a racist person before. I've never really honestly thought of myself as someone who didn't love everybody before. And as I saw other people Loving this girl. I mean, she couldn't do anything for herself physically. She couldn't. She'd go to a youth camp, and she had other girls who had to stay in the room with her and get her onto the toilet and wipe her and get her off of the toilet and dress her and change her. She couldn't feed herself. And so there's other girls who um, had to feed her. I'm sitting and watching these other students love this girl, the way Jesus would love her. And I was like, man, what is wrong with me? And Jesus brought Emily into my life to naturally and gently and lovingly show me how I should love. And man, I had to confess stuff in my life to God that I never thought was even there. And I had to ask for forgiveness for stuff from God that I never even realized was there. And you guys, as we have this conversation about dilemmas, that's how Jesus acts in our life. As you follow him, as you know him, as you build a relationship with him, there's not going to be a stone that's not unturned in your life. Not because he's going to come in like a mother-in-law and like go through your dirty laundry and all that stuff like that, but because he's going to love so well. As you follow him, you're naturally going to be like, "Oh my goodness, my shortcomings are exposed because I'm in the presence of a holy Father and a holy God. Let's pick this story up. It's taken us a long time to get there, but let's let's pick this story up of this woman. and we're going we're going to go to John chapter four verse sixteen. And Jesus and this woman have been having this conversation at this well for a while, and this is what he was talking about with her when the disciples, showed up and realized, oh my goodness, what's he, what are you doing talking to this woman? Well, this is what he was doing, talking to this woman. In verse 16, he says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. And the woman, embarrassed, exposed, realizing she's in the presence of a holy God who's not like this, who doesn't have this kind of a history in his life, does a thing all of us would do, and she just kind of changes the subject. In verse 9, sir, the woman says, you must be a prophet, and they enter into a dialogue about worship, philosophy, and theology. Because she's trying to change the subject and point it off of her and her stuff and onto something else. I mean, that's what we do, right? When we come up against Jesus and, and we don't want to be honest about what's really there in our lives and our hearts, it's easier for us to kind of look the other way. It's more comfortable for us not to deal with it. It's, 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 it's more socially acceptable for us just to even stuff it. You think about this woman for a second. Let me think. she's been married five times. Think back to the very first time she walked into her first marriage. It was probably arranged by her parents, what we know about culturally, that culture. Not only that, I mean, she probably went into this marriage excited. I mean, that was her dream. She probably, I'm like, straw poll. How many ladies in this room, before you got married, when you were a kid, you know what kind of color your wedding was going to be? All that stuff like that. You like dreamt about. My, Be honest. My daughters, I mean, my daughters are young, like five and four, and they talk about wanting to get married. They want to marry daddy, which is kind of cute and kind of weird all at the same time. But, I mean, you, they get it, and, and they, play, they play wedding, and they get dressed up and all that stuff like that, and I, I don't get it. I didn't have a sister. I'm not a girl. I never thought about a wedding before I got married, you know? And even then, it was kind of like, okay, whatever color you want it to be, you know? The guys don't care. They care about the honeymoon, you know? <laughs> Call it what it is, right? So, so you got to think, though, I mean, she's excited about this, right? She's never been married before. She's probably talking with her girlfriends about what the wedding ceremony is going to be like. She's probably talking about, you know, having a family and having kids in this new relationship and, and talking about what color she's going to paint her walls and what the home is going to look like and everything. I mean, she's talking about all the stuff that she's dreaming about. And, and the scriptures don't tell us, but somewhere along the way, something happens. I, I mean, something bad happens, I don't know whether he hit her. I don't know whether he ignored her. I don't know whether he screamed at her. I mean, we don't know if some deep, dark thing happened to her before they got married and she never really unpacked that and she brought that into the relationship and that affected the temperature of the home and the relationship. We, we don't know if, if he traveled a lot and, and, and she cheated on him. or We don't know if he traveled a lot and he had an affair. We don't know, but we do know that the relationship got so bad that it ended in a divorce. And that set this woman on a trajectory of going after relationship, after relationship, after relationship, marriage, after marriage, after marriage, after marriage, after marriage, the Scriptures tell us. Looking for someone to love her, looking for someone to embrace her, looking for someone to hold her and accept her and tell her it's going to be okay and be everything that a husband should be to a woman. Truth is, she probably went on a a cycle of trying to use sex to find love, And trying to find intimacy and security in a relationship with a man. Something that can really truly only be found in a relationship with her heavenly father. And before we get too down on her, I mean, to be honest with you, as you read the scriptures, because right as she changes the subject here, she enters into a conversation with Jesus about different philosophies of worship. And, and, and they had this conversation, and she talks about knowing that there's going to be a Messiah coming. And Jesus even goes on, this is an amazing thing, she's the first Gentile person that Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah. Go back and, and look at that for yourself. So they have this big theolo- theological question as she's trying to change the subject. So it's not like this woman wasn't spiritual, right? It's not like this woman wasn't religious. It's not like she didn't know that there was a God to be known. What, what it is is she's just settling for cheap substitutes. Maybe because it's easier to love someone with skin on. You know? But as she has this interaction with Jesus, she comes face to face with the greatest dilemma she's ever had in her life. And at the end of the day, it's the same dilemma that you and I deal with today as we love Jesus and follow him. And we come into contact with him and we realize, oh my goodness, I don't love like he does. I'm not as holy as he is. As our shortcomings are naturally exposed as we journey with God. Here, five years ago, um, five years ago, I was on a mission trip in Africa. And uh, we had teams all over the communities working with nine different local churches there in the communities. And we had those teams, they were doing service projects um, in those communities. And then the, the other part of the days, they were building relationships with the people in the church and doing evangelism with them in their communities. And um, so it happened that these two gals were in this one community, and you know, it was kind of a red-light district where this church was at. And um, they were going out on the streets, building relationships with people, doing service projects, and talking to them about Jesus. And these two gals ended up having this conversation with this woman uh, on the street one day. And they actually went through the entire gospel with her. I mean, no, no lie, she's tracking every step of the way. She'd never heard about Jesus before. And, and she's literally right on the edge of eternity in heaven with Jesus. And it's kind of down to that Fisher cup bait time of a conversation. If you've ever had the opportunity to share your faith with someone, at some point it's, they're either, they either are going to surrender their life to Jesus Christ or they're going to say no thanks and walk away. It was kind of at that moment of the conversation. And this, this gal turns and looks at these two ladies and says, Hold on a second. I have a couple of kids, I have a couple of kids, and I'm a prostitute. If I decide to follow this Jesus you're talking to me about, if I decide to become a Christian, is He going to want me to stop being a prostitute? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, He's going to want you to stop being a prostitute. How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to take care of my kids? And there she was standing on the very street that the night before she was selling her body on, face to face with the greatest dilemma of her life. If I'm going to follow your God, what's it going to cost me? And this woman in John chapter 4, she's faced with the same dilemma. I mean, what we know about her culturally, she's been married five times. She's probably got at least five kids. She's living with a guy that we know is probably supporting her and her kids financially. And what would the Scriptures teach us about living together, right? I mean, probably not a good idea based on what the Scriptures would teach us. And she's face to face with the greatest dilemma of her life. If I choose follow this guy who's telling me he's the Messiah. What do I do with my live-in boyfriend? How am I going to feed my kids? And, and the dilemma, at the end of the day, if all this conversation we've been having the last couple of weeks, what it comes down to is this, the question that gnaws away in our heart when you and I come to the point and realize Jesus is like this and we're like this and there's an impasse and something's got to give and there's that dilemma, there's a point of obedience or potential surrender for us, then the question that gnaws away at us is this, what's it going to cost me to follow Jesus? Is the price too high? And let's be honest, there's moments that, are, that, that absolute fear floods our soul and we're absolutely scared to death to say yes to God because of what that might mean for us, right? Let's, let's see what she does next. Jump on down to uh, verse 28. Yeah. I've had this conversation. Jesus has told her that he's the Messiah. She could go this way, she could go that way. She could say, no, the price is too high, see ya. Or she could take the most embarrassing, most painful moment of her life and allow God's grace to cover it and allow him to use it. And in verse 28, this is what she decides to do. The woman left her water jar beside the well and went back to the village, and she told everyone, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. I've got to be honest with you. When I read the scriptures, I'm thinking to myself, honey, everybody knows what you did. You did it with everybody. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying, That's how when I read the scriptures, that's what I think. I, maybe my, sh- my head shouldn't go there, but that's just where it goes. Can, can this be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Jump on down to verse 39. Kind of the rest of the story here. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay at their village. So he stayed for two days. Remember the whole three routes Jesus could have gone? Samaria, the Samaritan route was the quickest route to get from Judea to Galilee. Jesus was not in a hurry, guys. He stayed there for two days. In verse 41, long enough for many of them to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe because we have heard him ourselves, not just because of what you told us. Indeed, he is the Savior of the world. This is what I can promise you. I can promise you that if you decide to follow God, I don't mean just go to church, guys. I, if you decide to have a relationship with the, uni- the, the creator of the universe, you have decided to be a Christian, I can guarantee you: the longer you walk with him, the closer you get to him, the more points of dilemma like this are going to come up in your life. They just are. It's kind of funny. You'd think it's the other way around, like I become a Christian and everything is okay. I mean, on one hand, you just want to say, hey, Jesus, why can't you just give me heaven and eternity and call it done? I mean, why can't we just call it done at that, right? And the truthful answer is this. As long as you journey with him, he won't call it done. He won't be rude. He won't be a jerk. He won't be nosy. But he'll invite you to live a life very, very close to him. And as you do it, the disparity will show up. And the reason why is because he intentionally wants to grow and shape you and I into the image of his son. He's not done with us. Why do these dilemmas come up in our life over and over and over and over again? Why for some of us have we been hanging on to this one thing for years and years and years, and yet we keep coming back to points of dilemma as we follow God? Why does that happen? Because God is not content to leave you and I the way we are. He's not. That's not how this relationship works. God is shaping us and molding us and growing us into the image of God of his son, practically building holiness into our lives. And if you let him, I mean, and like this woman did, if you let him take the scariest, most embarrassing, some of the biggest shortcomings in your life, if you're willing to surrender those to God and bring them to him, you will be amazed at how he covers those things with his grace and then sets them on display to have a tremendous impact in the world. I mean, that's what he did in this woman's life, Right? I mean, she's scared to death. What am I going to do? What what am I going to do with my live-in boyfriend? Scripture doesn't tell us how that conversation went. What am I going to do with my kids? How am I going to feed them? If there was ever a dilemma, this woman faced it. This may sound kind of silly to you guys, but I am going to tell you anyways, I think one of the biggest dilemmas I ever faced in my life it was a dilemma over a career choice. Um, to be honest with you, I, I can remember nights as a young man going to bed and literally, literally crying myself to sleep. Because in my heart I had this deep burning passion and drive and almost sense of obligation of realizing how deeply God loved me, that he gave his life for me, that he literally switched places with me, as scripture would say. And yet I I felt like I I owed him my life back. And for me, it was more than just trying to live a holy life. For me, it was, what about my career? Doesn't doesn't God deserve my career as well? And I I would wrestle through my mind of having this deep burden to affect thousands and thousands and thousands of people for God. And yet at the same time, that, that great burden and passion and sense of obligation was equally met with this huge amount of fear in my life of what if I say yes to God? What if I say, yes, God, you can have all of me, including my career? What? There's, there's a sense of, of what is God going to do with that? I mean, am I willing to pay that price? What's that really going to cost me? And there was this big point of dilemma and tension in my life. I mean, honestly, as a young man, I kept thinking to myself, dude, what, what if I really said yes to God? Is he going to send me to Africa where I'm going to get some weird disease where my feet turn blue and fall off? I mean, that's... I'm, That's what's going through my head. And the question and the dilemma that you and I are faced with, it's not so much God jumping into your life and being rude and being a bully and saying, what about this and what about this and what about this. It's when you follow him, the discrepancies between his life and ours show up and naturally bring you and I to a point of potential surrender. And the truth is this, some of you guys have walked with God for a while, and there are areas of your life that you're absolutely embarrassed about, and you hope stay hidden the rest of your life. How powerful would it be if Cornerstone was made up of a community of people who said, God, it's scary. I don't know what it's going to cost me but I'm willing to give this to you. Would you please cover it with your grace and use it to impact people in my life? What could God do with a community of people like that? What could God do with a community of people that came to a point of dilemma in their life and the answer was surrender? God could change a world with people like that. Because he changed an entire village with one woman who was willing to do that. Let's pray. Dear God, the truth is, um, this is a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. And the truth is that um, for many of us in this room right now, there's a lot of fear. It's scary to let go of stuff that we've held on to for a long time because we don't necessarily know what you're going to do with this and what it's going to cost us. But God, I pray that in this moment that we would give you the freedom and the authority in a gentle manner that you always do through your spirit to kind of prod around in our lives to show us anything in this moment that needs to change. God, as we reflect on your holiness and your goodness and the manner in which you love, God, would you graciously point out our shortcomings? And would you gently draw us to yourself that at the end of the day, we'd look more like you? And God, for some of us, would you give us the courage to surrender that one issue and cover it with your grace and then put it on display for the world. That your story and your grace would be famous because of how the way you act with your people. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen.